0: History is the most important subject that you can study and if you can't see what's happening in the past you can't look nearly as far in the future okay, yes, We've had a here. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. This This is Rewind Repeat, a history podcast. What you're about to hear is part five of a multi part series on the making of Europe. If you haven't listened to any of the previous episodes, I encourage you to go back and listen to all of them. But if you don't have time, I understand. This is, after all, more of a long form show. This is the episode that focuses on Charlemagne and his deeds. Now, for Charlemagne, The Forging of Europe, Part 5. The relationship between church and state has to be one of the most controversial and yet fundamental challenges for Western society. Look at the EU. And that's a good place to start on this last episode on the series on Charlemagne. Seeing as that's where we started... We started with the EU using Charlemagne as a symbol of unity and trying to understand what that symbol is all about. Well, the EU was going through a vigorous debate on its constitution back in 2006. They were debating whether or not to include a reference to Christianity. Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, made some waves by stepping into the debate after meeting with the Pope and telling the press this, quote, I underline my opinion that we need a European identity in the form of a constitutional treaty and I think it should be connected to Christianity and God as Christianity has forged Europe in a decisive way. End quote. Now this upset some European nations. The more secular nations like France and Belgium claimed this would violate the principle of separation between church and state. And then other European nations wanted that reference. It's important to note that Merkel's comments came after the Constitution was rejected by France and the Netherlands. So it really wasn't a time that you'd want to say something controversial. Separation of church and state is also an issue in America, where some people have done everything they can to remove all reference of religion from the government. Those that want to tear down religious influence look at history and see what the Catholic Church did in Europe as a reason why. Here's a church that got so much control of the government and culture that it started religious wars, inquisitions, mass murders, and held down scientific discovery for hundreds of years. Now, the founding fathers of the United States were fine with religious influence in government. In fact, they knew the government needed religious and moral people to function. They just wanted to prevent a repeat of an established church, like the Catholic Church. They weren't throwing out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. So you can see why some European nations would be hesitant to want to reference it in the EU Constitution. The Catholic Church's history is something you don't want to focus too much on. And so they go looking for a different symbol of unity, one that is more palatable, and now you see the push to use Charlemagne. But Charlemagne is the biggest reason why the Catholic Church became so dominant in Europe. And his whole worldview was created from Catholic philosophy. So using him still, in an indirect way, references Christianity, at least Catholicism. Now, the church and state relationship is not a new problem. It's one Charlemagne had to deal with as well, and by the time he was on the scene, you had something totally unique to this world, a religion acting like a state independent of any state. I didn't cover the split in the Catholic Church between the Eastern and Western churches, but their biggest difference wasn't really theology. That's what gets all the focus. But really, the main reason, I think, for that split is that the Eastern Church was always controlled by the Byzantine Emperor. And the Western Church, led by Rome and the Pope, never wanted to accept the Emperor's control. They broke free. And that was the reason. Now back to the 700s, where we left off in the last episode. The Catholic Church is looking to form a new relationship to protect them because they're essentially a state without a military. And they find a willing partner in Pepin. We covered the deal they made. Pepin would become a legitimate king of the Franks with the Pope's blessing, and the church, in return, would get Frankish protection. And where we left off exactly Charlemagne was now the sole king of the Franks. Now, as a young boy, he fully understood how important that relationship was with the Catholic Church, and everything we see shows him to be a sincere, true believer. This isn't like Constantine where we could debate about how sincere he was, whether he really ever stopped worshiping the sun, whether or not the guy was just hedging his bets for the afterlife. No, Charlemagne is 100% Catholic. And as we will see, he's better at it than some of the popes that were alive during his time. After his brother dies, Carloman and the kingdom is united under him, Charlemagne immediately does what any good Germanic king does. He goes on the warpath. So just a few months after his brother dies, Charlemagne is leading an army northeast across the Rhine River deep into territory controlled by the Saxons. He's raiding, pillaging, and of course, killing. He is able to take some Saxon nobility into captivity. And this was the first of many campaigns Charlemagne would make into Saxony. Almost every year in his reign, for the next 33 years, Charlemagne is warring with the Saxons. Now remember, this was expected for a Germanic king. It was the best way for him to continue to reward the loyalty of his nobility by plundering the neighbors. And Saxon territory had been the target of Frankish raids from back to even Charles Martel's time. The Franks under Pepin were able to get the Saxons to pay tribute, but the Saxons had been harassing the Franks for years on and off, raiding into their territory. So it was a tit-for-tat back and forth. The Franks would be murdered. They'd have their territory pillaged. Farms would be burned. And then the Franks would come back and do the same to the Saxons. They were doing the same thing to each other for many years, except we have to remember the Franks were better organized and more numerous. So time was on the Franks' side. There was one thing, though, that happened in this first raid of Charlemagne that was a foreshadow of what was to come for the Saxons. Charlemagne led his army deep into Saxon territory and went after one of their most sacred groves, in which there was a sacred tree called Erminsol. Now, according to the Saxons, they thought this tree upheld the heavens, But that belief was extinguished when Charlemagne burnt it down. That's the kind of move, though, that will keep the Saxons fighting you. And that was just the first raid. There is more to come. But before Charlemagne gets into it more, something comes up with the Lombards and the Pope in Italy that he has to deal with. Italy was once again brewing in a crisis. After Pepin defeated the Lombards, he left them as a client state, independent, but the Lombards had to acknowledge Frankish supremacy. Now, new Lombard king, Desidrius, succeeds on the throne, and he has pretty good relations with both Charlemagne and Charlemagne's brother back when he was alive. Charlemagne even married one of the Lombard king's daughters. But things changed two years after that marriage. Carloman was dead. His sons, whose inheritance was taken by Charlemagne, they fled to Italy with their mother. And at some point, we don't know which order... The Lombard King encourages Carloman's widow to claim her son's inheritance and request they be anointed by the Pope. So this is essentially the Lombard King inciting civil war. Charlemagne returns Desiderus' daughter for failure to provide a son, and that upsets the Lombard King. And the newly elected Pope, Pope Adrian, writes to Charlemagne that Rome was under Lombard threat once again. The new Lombard king is more aggressive, more imperialistic than the previous king, and he's refusing to return some of the pope's cities that were promised to be returned when he succeeded. Instead, he invades and takes more of the pope's cities. So these three things happen, and relations just get bad. Now, clearly, the Lombards were hoping for a Frankish civil war, that would free them up so they could conquer Rome and get rid of the Pope, essentially. This was a failure of the previous Lombard kings, and if you recall from the previous episodes, a big reason why the Lombards were in such a bad state. They never took Rome. And really, this crisis is actually just a final reckoning for the Lombards, the Franks, and the Pope. At first, it sounds like Charlemagne wants to negotiate, offering basically for the Lombards to give up the cities that the Pope paid. But no one wants to settle. The Pope wants a final answer. He insists Charlemagne goes to war. And Charlemagne does. It takes a few months to gather an army, composed of people all over Francia. So it's a massive army. And he gets ready for invasion. He crosses the Alps in 773. Now, there are two passes. ...that the Franks could take over the Alps into the Lombard territory. Each of them had an ancient Roman road that allowed the army to cross. And on the other side of the Alps, though, there were some basically fortifications the Lombards built... ...expecting the Franks to take these two passes. But Charlemagne organizes such a big army, he's able to split it in two and send them down both passes... So that's pretty bad. Now the Lombards have to really get ready for potential battle in two different areas. Even worse when Charlemagne's army crosses the Alps and gets to the other side, he finds someone that he can bribe and they show him a pass that kind of circumvents the fortification. And now you have the Franks coming in one way and covering the retreat for the Lombards. So before they got cut off, the Lombard king freaks out and retreats to his capital in Pavia. There's a wonderful and legendary description of what it was like for that Lombard king stuck in Pavia waiting for Charlemagne and his army to come and lay siege. It comes from a Frankish historian, Notker the Stammerer, who wrote this, by the way, about 70 years after Charlemagne died. So... It's not like it's 100% accurate. It's just a story. But it's a story Charlemagne's grandchildren would have grown up hearing. It's a little long to include all of it, but basically one of the chief Frankish nobles named Otker had previously fled to Desiderius for protection. And now they're both in Pavia in a high tower watching Charlemagne's army approach. And the army gets their piecemeal each time a new part of the army arrives, Desiderius asks Octor, is Charles in the army? Basically, is that the whole army I'm seeing? And Octor would say, not yet. And this went on several times. First when the baggage wagons appeared, then the cavalry and the troops. Three times Desiderius asks, is Charles there? And three times Octor says, not yet. And each time, Desiderius freaks out even more. Octor says, When you see black rivers of iron flooding around the city walls like waves of the sea, then you know he is here. And then Charles arrives. Here's how Knocker describes the account. Quote, Hardly were these words finished when there came from the west a mighty wind, and with the north wind began to blow like a black cloud, which turned the bright day to horrid gloom. But as the emperor drew nearer, the gleam of his weapons turned the darkness into day, a day darker than any night to the beleaguered garrison. Then could be seen the Iron Charles, helmeted with an iron helmet, his hands clad in iron gauntlets, his iron breast and platonic shoulders protected with an iron breastplate. An iron spear was raised on high in his left hand, his right, always rested on his unconquered sword. The thighs, which with most men are uncovered so that they may the more easily ride on horseback, were in his case clad with plates of iron. I need make no special mention of his greaves, for the greaves of all the armor were of iron. His shield was all of iron. His warhorse was iron-colored and iron-hearted. All who went before him, all who marched by his side, all who followed after him, And the whole equipment of the army imitated him as closely as possible. The fields and open places were filled with iron. The rays of sun were thrown black by the gleam of iron. A people harder than iron paid universal honor to the hardness of iron. Oh, the iron! Woe for the iron! Was the confused cry that rose from the citizens. End quote. What a fantastic description. Even if it's biased, iron everywhere. Charlemagne hunkers down for the siege, one evidently so well laid out that he takes a break and visits Rome. And the siege would last for over a year, but right before Easter in 774, Charlemagne takes a big entourage down to visit Rome for the first time. It's hard to know too what kind of impression the city of Rome would make on someone like Charlemagne. Even in its decaying state, it would have been impressive for anyone from Francia. The Colosseum, was one of the tallest buildings in Europe at the time and, as far as I know, was the tallest he would have seen. And this is the kind of tour that would inspire Charlemagne for years to come, expand his thinking, show the possibilities, he could say, of his reign. Like I said, it's impossible to know exactly how that would have impacted him, but I'm sure many of you listening have had some similar experience when touring some historical monument or some great city today. He wants to visit Rome during a Catholic holiday, but had some things to talk about with the Pope concerning the future of Italy. He meets Pope Adrian, and they hit it off real well. The Pope is hoping that the Lombard kingdom would essentially be dissolved and that the Franks and the Pope would divide the spoils. But we don't know if there was a deal made or what deal was made, because when two months later Charlemagne does defeat Desiderius, Charlemagne does something different than what the Pope was expecting. He takes on a new title, and the title is this, Charles, by the grace of God, king of the Franks and of the Lombards. So he doesn't dissolve the Lombard kingdom, but he doesn't absorb it into Franka either. He essentially sets up a separate kingdom, but that's under him. He keeps it intact and proclaims himself king. So the Pope doesn't get everything he wants, but he and the Catholic Church still win big, because Charlemagne takes out their greatest enemy. Here's how Alessandro Barbero puts it in his book, Charlemagne, Father of a Continent. Quote, The Republic of St. Peter's, this was the Pope state, by the way, whose creation had been the ambition of Pope since the beginning of the 8th century, thus took on the more or less definitive shape of the papal state, whose last remnants only fell more than a thousand years later under the cannon fire that breached the walls of Rome at Porta Pia. End quote. So that was in 1870. Not until 1870 did the papal states get taken over by another government. That's a pretty big win for the Catholic Church, a state that essentially had no military. Now Charlemagne was in the middle of organizing Italy's government when the Saxons start trouble again, and they force him to leave. In 774, the situation has changed quite a bit, though, from when Charlemagne first raided the Saxons for all Practical purposes, Charlemagne was now the only Catholic king in Europe, and he was beset on all sides by pagans, like the Saxons in the forests of Germany, or the Muslims in Spain, or the Avars and Slavs in Eastern Europe. And historians, they all seem to agree that Charlemagne grew more ruthless against the Saxons as their resistance became fiercer, but to me it seems like after visiting Rome and meeting with the Pope that. Charlemagne might have been inspired to change his approach then. Once again, I'll quote Barbero: quote, The Franks were a warrior people, eager to attack and subjugate their neighbors. Charles Martel and later Pepin had earned their support precisely by leading them every year on victorious expeditions of conquest, from which everyone returned loaded with glory and booty. But now, more than ever in the past, these wars of aggression took an unequivocal religious legitimacy, Every time Charles raised his sword against his neighbors, the Pope's benediction would accompany him, and the God of armies from high up in his heaven could only look on his enterprise with gratification. How could he fail in such conditions? End quote. The truth is, Charlemagne rarely failed. Now, it's important to point out that Charlemagne was at war with somebody nearly every year of his reign, including the Saxons. It's what the Frank kings do. It's routine. You pick a target in winter, prepare to leave in the spring, and then when summer comes, you fight. You repeat this every year. There is a saying at the time, have the Frank for your friend, but not for your neighbor. Well, sometimes you can't choose your neighbors, and the Saxons are going to get the harshest war Charlemagne has ever fought. And it was fought with an impressive military machine. This relied a lot on the Catholic Church, too the great men of the kingdom, the nobles and the bishops, especially the bishops, were required to send men for Charlemagne's campaigns. And the number of men, how well they were armed, all of that was based on the wealth of the person sending them. And so the church sent a vital amount of men and weapons for these campaigns. It'd be safe to say that without their help, the campaigns would have not been nearly as successful. And many of the great Men, the nobles, gladly did this too. They used military service to keep their mafia-style grip on the people they ruled. If you wanted to take someone's land, send them for military service. If you're lucky, they die in the campaign. And if not, their lands would sit fallow, not being used productively. And that would usually be enough to force the man to sell his land to cover the debts he would accrue from not having a harvest. It was a tough world, even for the Franks. Back to Charlemagne's military machine. You see, the place of campaign would typically be decided in the fall or winter from the previous year. Several months before the campaign would start, the call to arms would be issued and men and provisions would be assembled at a predetermined place from which they had launched the campaign. It was a huge production, but it allowed Charlemagne to field the massive numbers of troops that he did, more than any single adversary could compete with. It was why he failed so rarely. But it takes a lot of effort to feed and supply a massive army, especially when the army is on friendly territory because you can't just take it from the population. And then when it's on enemy territory, you're not guaranteed to have food or grass for the animals to graze on because the enemy could just scorch it all. So they had to bring these huge baggage trains and send them out with the army to bring rations of food and keep the animals in good condition. The military columns would therefore stretch out for miles, just like we saw in Notker's account at Pavia. Here's how Barbaro describes it. Quote, The common two-wheeled cart pulled by a yoke of oxen was capable of carrying half a ton of flour, barely a day's ration for 500 men. The ration for 1,000 men over a three-month campaign was therefore 180 carts and 360 oxen. Then there was the wine, which at the time was routinely drunk by all sections of society and constituted an important supplement of calories. Given that cart could carry 130 or 160 gallons, the same 1,000 men would need another 180 carts on the campaign. Every day a horse would require about 22 pounds of fodder, of which half could be grass or hay, but the other half would have to be barley or oats. Over three months, a hundred horses would therefore consume the loads of another ninety carts. This is not counting the carts that transported arms and equipment or the provisions required from the long journey from the men's own country to the assembly point where operations would begin. So Barbero basically calculates that an army of twelve thousand men with maybe only three thousand on horses would need 6,000 carts pulled by 12,000 oxen. That was just to find enough grass, hay, and water for those animals would have been a challenge. An oxen pulling a cart would only have gone about 9 or 10 miles a day. So remember, also, there weren't anything like modern roads, and even the ancient Roman roads were crumbling. 12,000, by the way, is kind of like the baseline estimate of Charlemagne's armies. And now you can see why Charlemagne was so fond of the pincer movement when he crossed the Alps, because dividing his army in half made it easier to feed everyone and then they could combine when they needed to. So Charlemagne used such large numbers to conquer his smaller and sometimes not very well organized enemies like the Lombards. There's the Saxons, there's the Bavarians, the Avars, and the Muslims in in, uh, Spain. Now, doing that alone is not really notable. Let's be honest, the Romans could field much better armies 800 years earlier. But what is notable, and I think pretty remarkable when you're talking about 6,000 carts and 12,000 oxen and all the food and the weapons, is that this was all being organized in a society that was largely still illiterate. These guys could barely read or write. Even Charlemagne could barely write. So that was Charlemagne's military machine, and the Saxons would feel the full brunt of it. Now, the Franks were most savage and spent the most time fighting the Saxons. The Franks not only were fighting them, at the same time, they were also supporting missionary work during this time, which I think is pretty strange. Not really convincing approach, Here's some missionaries convert to Catholicism. Oh, by the way, we're raiding and pillaging your land at the same time. The Saxons obviously refused to convert. One of these missionaries named Lebuin told the Saxons, if you will not accept belief in God, there is a king in the next country who will enter your land, conquer it, and lay it waste. And sure enough, that king, Charlemagne, did come. And his strategy was essentially to strangulate the Saxons by building a network of fortifications that spread out over their territory. And these forts could supply each other, they could support each other, and by putting them in the most important parts, like around the rivers, the Franks could choke out the Saxons economically as well. It was a ruthless war. Here's how Barbero puts it, quote, It was a ferocious war in a country with little or no civilization, with neither roads nor cities, and entirely covered with forests and marshland. The Saxons sacrificed prisoners of war to their gods, as Germans had always done before converting to Christianity. And the Franks did not hesitate to put to death anyone who refused to be baptized. Time and again, the Saxon chiefs, worn down by war with no quarter, sued for peace, offered hostages, accepted baptism and undertook to allow missionaries to go around their work. But every time that vigilance slackened and Charles was engaged on some other front, rebellions broke out. Frankish garrisons were attacked and massacred, and monasteries were pillaged, end quote. So this was clearly, for the Franks, a religious war. Conversion forced by the sword. Convert or die. That's the choice the Franks gave the Saxons on top of pillaging and plundering. Charlemagne is the first Catholic crusader king the world had seen. But the Saxons kept resisting. There would be this pattern. You see, they'd be defeated, promised to convert and submit, and then they'd rebel. And as soon as they found out Charlemagne was gone, warring somewhere else, that was the chance they took to go raid the Franks. Like in 778, when Charlemagne was in Spain fighting Muslims in the Pyrenees, the Saxons rose up Rebelled, destroyed some forts. Then back comes Charlemagne to subdue them. And finally, at this time, he decides to officially incorporate Saxony into his territory. He starts passing laws, some of which give the Saxons the death penalty for offending the Catholic religion and its clergy. It's the first step towards forced conversion legally, which of course makes the Saxons even more rebellious. And it's a weird situation where there are some Saxon nobles working with Charlemagne and then other Saxon nobles refusing to, and so the people just weren't united. Saxon resistance got worse in 782 when the rebels finally get this clever and aggressive leader, an interesting guy named Wittekind. He's a Saxon noble, one of the ones who refused to work with Charlemagne, and when he refused to work with Charlemagne, he fled from the Franks to the north, but he comes back later just to stir up trouble. And he does that by causing the Saxons to revolt along with him. It's kind of like Return of the Jedi. This guy is the last best hope to keep the Saxons free of the Franks. Wittekind is kind of a magnet for pagan warriors too, because this is a religious war and he represents The old religion. The old ways. Any pagan warrior who wants the old way signs up to fight with him. He waits for Charlemagne, who takes his large army to go campaigning somewhere else when he decides to strike. Widokin raids and pillages the Franks, as usual. The Franks, who are left behind, decide to respond by sending in a military force, a smaller one, most likely a few thousand, but led by some of Charlemagne's closest advisors, including a chamberlain who was actually a close friend to him. And this force consists of cavalry, led by some nobles, very eager for glory, and a larger complement of infantry, led by one of Charlemagne's cousins. They come out to meet Wittekind, who's camped in an area called Sintel. Now it looks like the Franks have this in the bag. They are the Franks after all. They plan to split their cavalry and infantry. They're going to send the cavalry off behind Whitaken's camp and then that cavalry is going to wait for the infantry to come up and catch the Saxons in a pincer. So the cavalry goes off, gets behind the camp and just needs to wait. That's all they need to do. Wait for the infantry to catch up to execute this pincer move and take care of Whittakin. But the cavalry is led by some glory-hungry commanders. Perhaps not being part of the main campaign with Charlemagne got them feeling a little insecure. Whittakin sees the cavalry. He realizes the danger he's in. He knows it's going to be a pincer movement, so he has to do something to break out of it and he does something rather incredible. He puts out his warriors in front of the camp, exposing them to a cavalry charge on purpose. You see, cavalry just love to charge infantry because they can just break into the formation and kill as many of them as they can. And at this time, the cavalry is becoming more important for this reason. In fact, Charlemagne ramps up the numbers of cavalry in his army, and it's really the beginning Part of a trend in Europe that leads to what we all know and probably love as the medieval knight. But that's still in the future. Anyways, the cavalry commanders, they want recognition for taking out what they can. They don't want to share it with the infantry. They see his warriors exposed to a charge. And so they decide to go for it. They ignore the original plan. But the terrain is not really good for a cavalry charge. It's hard to stay in formation when the ground isn't even and there's trees everywhere. And maybe the troops were a little too eager on the Frank side because the charge is not good enough to break the infantry. And they get wrecked. Wittikin and his warriors slaughter them. A few survivors escape to tell the infantry, but Charlemagne's friend and Chamberlain dies. Some other counts and nobles dies well. It was humiliating. And when the infantry learn of it, they retreat and they wait for Charlemagne to come back. Wittekin, he actually flees back north, not waiting for Charlemagne to return. And after learning about it, Charlemagne gets to Saxony as soon as possible. He's, of course, furious. And he comes with an army and demands to the Saxon nobility, hand over those warriors involved in the battle. And the Saxon nobility do. 4,500 Saxon warriors are handed over to Charlemagne in a place called Verdun. And Charlemagne, angry over the death of his friends and nobility and his humiliation, tired of this back-and-forth war with the Saxon, decides to make a statement. He decapitates all 4,500 Saxon warriors in a day. Now, what kind of man orders something like that? You have to remember that this is way before the days of guns or gas chambers. How long does it even take to kill 4,500 Saxons in one day? Do you line them all up in front of 4,500 francs and then give the order so that all are beheaded at one moment? And if it isn't at once, and you're one of the remaining, I don't know, say 500 Saxons left, already seeing 4,000 of your comrades getting decapitated, Do you try to escape, or do you accept your fate? How do you even keep that many warriors from knowing what is going to happen so they don't fight back? Maybe Charlemagne broke them up into groups. We don't know. If you're frank, though, and Charlemagne orders you to kill a Saxon, do you feel honorable doing so? Decapitating an unarmed man who surrendered. Would it haunt you? what you did there? Maybe not. And remember, at that time, 4,500 men is a lot larger of a population than what we would think of today. The biggest cities in Charlemagne's empire were most likely in the range of 10,000 to 20,000 people. Those are the biggest cities. Killing 4,500 men back then would be like massacring an entire mid-sized city at the time or maybe all the men of fighting age in a large city. This was not a small matter. Imagine all the men of your city, say like Oklahoma City, being rounded up and decapitated. Even today, 4,500 would be about half the size of a small town, say like Guthrie, Oklahoma, just a few miles north of here. Once again, what kind of person would give an order to do something like that. His execution was not normal. Not since the Roman Empire would you have seen an atrocity like that. And this is the hero of Europe, the symbol of unity, Charlemagne. This execution, this act of mass murder, was one reason why in the first episode of the series, I quoted the recipient of the 1997 Charlemagne Prize, Dr. Roman Herzog. In his acceptance speech, he said, quote, Charlemagne, after whom our prize is named, made his own particular choice, the first unification of Europe. At such an hour, the truth must be told. Only by wading through a sea of blood, sweat, and tears did he reach his goal, end quote. You could say a man of iron waded through a sea of blood to forge Europe. And Charlemagne's brutality didn't stop there. It wasn't soon after that that Charlemagne passes a new law, insisting now that the Saxons convert on pain of death. Convert or die. Even Charlemagne's court was appalled by all of this. Here's how Tom Holland puts it in his book, Millennium, The End of the World and the Forging of Christendom. Quote, After one particular savage rebellion, thousands of prisoners had been beheaded in a single dispatch. The populations of entire areas forcibly relocated Death introduced as the penalty for refusing baptism, for clinging to the ancient rites, even for eating meat during Lent. Not since the age of Caesar's had atrocities been committed on quite so imperious a scale, and never before with the goal of imposing the love of Christ. There were many in Charlemagne's train who had paled at the knowledge. End quote. And maybe you think that for this time period, maybe it wasn't so brutal. I mean, when you go through this history, this whole time period was just brutal and violent bloody and so it might be easy to think that maybe this was just a normal outcome of how wars were typically fought back then but here's what barbero writes about this event in his book quote yet we should be careful not to put the blame for this barbarity onto the times in general the capitular de partibus saxon which was the law charlemagne passed is one of those provisions by which an infuriated general attempts to break the resistance of an entire people through terror, and Charles must bear the moral responsibility, like the many 20th century generals, responsible for equally inhumane measures, end quote. This is Charlemagne here. Barbero compares him to the worst military commanders of World War II, and if you look at that history of what the Japanese generals did, the Russian generals did, and the nazi generals did to each other it's horrific world war ii is brutal over 60 million people died and you expect a lot of brutality in a war like that but some commanders well they're just extreme and then there are other commanders like ss lieutenant colonel adolf eichmann the architect of the nazi death camps who systemized mass murder Unusually brutal. Demonically so. And Barbaro is saying, look, Charlemagne is like one of those people. Eichmann came up with death camps, but Charlemagne mass-murdered 4,500 warriors in one day and without gas. And what he did that day in 782 gets most of the attention, rightly so, for its violence. But Charlemagne created a system of terror one based on thought control, convert or die. And he threatened all those who opposed conversion with death. He even uses methods that we would consider modern today. When he subjugated the Saxons, he went beyond devastating the land and starving the population. He deported Saxons in mass, planted franks in their territory, and even some Slav colonists were resettled in Saxony. So he created a whole system of terror here. You can say Charlemagne is like the Hitler of his time. And remember, that's how this whole series started, comparing all these so-called great men like Alexander and Caesar and Charlemagne and looking at how, well, they were just as much evil butchers as Hitler was and wondering how many years would it take before Hitler doesn't look so bad. Charlemagne was successful, and his friends and followers were the ones who got to write the history. So, history looks on him kindly compared to how we look on Hitler today. After 782, the Saxons still rebel on and off. Winnicott comes back, but this time not as a rebel leader, but as someone who gives up. He promises to convert if he's spared. And believe it or not, Charlemagne does spare him in 785. And by 803, towards the end of Charlemagne's rule, Saxony becomes an official part of Francia. Saxons are fighting in Charlemagne's wars. The Saxon nobility become equals with the other Frankish nobles. In fact, the next iteration of the Holy Roman Empire has a Saxon on the throne. And of course, wouldn't you believe it, the Saxons, when they get control of the throne, will they do the same thing the Franks did to them. And the oppressed become the oppressors. Really, fiction can't beat this history. Now, I don't have time to go much more into Charlemagne's reign. He subdues the Saxons, he subdues the Bavarians, he even goes into Central Eastern Europe area and subdues the Avars. And apparently he waged this war almost as fiercely and brutally as he did with the Saxons. Here's how Einhard, a courtier and historian who joined Charlemagne's court in the 790s, puts it in his history, quote, How many battles were fought, how much blood was shed, is attested by Pannonia, empty of all inhabitants and the place where the palace of the Khan was. It is so deserted that there is scarcely a trace of any human dwelling there. The whole nobility of the Avars perished in that war, and all their glory ended. All the wealth and treasure they had assembled over many years was seized. Human memory cannot record any war against the Franks that left them richer and more enriched. End quote. It's interesting in that history there how Einhard, a friend to Charlemagne, makes it sound like the Avars were the aggressors. So we know that this description is not entirely accurate as it is biased. But in that war with the Avars in 795, Charlemagne does haul off this massive booty, so much so it takes 15 carts pulled by four oxen each to take it all. And Charlemagne was able to pay off all his nobles, including the recently incorporated Saxons, the clergy. They all got this wealth. Charlemagne even upgrades his palace that he was building in Aiken because of it. And you can see really why the Franks just loved him. This guy kept winning and was rewarding them with a lot of wealth. Tom Holland writes in his book about Charlemagne and his conquest like this, quote, Warfare had long been the activity of choice among the Franks. Back in the days of Childeric, it had served to win them Gaul, after all. Leaders who failed to provide their followers with the spoils of pillage rarely endured for long. No sooner had winter thawed in the spring than the Frankish people, dusting down their spears, would prepare to follow their king out on campaign. Charlemagne, whose hunger for booty was insatiable, had inherited to the fool the appetites of a primordial line of warrior chiefs." End quote. Charlemagne lives the life of a Frankish king, and he's great at it. And while I focus on his war-making efforts, there's a lot of aspects to Charlemagne's reign that gets a lot of respect as well. In fact, they call his reign the Carolingian Renaissance, a rebirth of civilization. For example, Charlemagne improves the writing script, or he has his scholars do that. And our own writing script today derives from a script developed by scholars he creates a more stable currency he sets up a system of administration to try to fight corruption he does this by the way by pairing up a bishop and a noble and he would send both of them out to different parts of his kingdom and they're there to ensure that the laws are being carried out he builds a magnificent palace at Achan the chapel of which still stands today He gives financial relief to the Catholic Church in Jerusalem. He does all these things. He unifies Catholic Church standards, making the Frankish bishops and the other bishops under his control in Europe conform to Roman Catholic practice, which seems so obvious today, but actually back then was something resisted by many people before Charlemagne. They didn't want to conform to just one Roman Catholic practice, but Charlemagne forces it. And he promotes better Latin learning, and education so that the clergy and the nobility can be better educated. This all sounds great, doesn't it? He's building European civilization. But you have to remember that this is all under the inspiration of the Catholic Church and done in a framework that forces it on everybody. Remember, convert or die. And recall our first episode about the Catholic Church and how it was founded to crush Jesus Christ's true followers and violently enforce its beliefs on as many people as it could. Charlemagne society, well, it isn't so shiny when you bring that history into the context, is it? Here's what Rosamond McKitterick says Charlemagne is trying to do in her book, Charlemagne, The Formation of a European Identity. She writes, quote, Charlemagne's policy from early in his reign was directed towards the transformation of the entire people of the Frankish realm into a Christian people, the salvation of that people, the formation of the whole of society in the territories under Frankish rule within a Christian framework, and the integration of the concerns of the faith with those of society as a whole." So Charlemagne is really trying to re-engineer the whole society. That's what his motivation was for this renaissance, for reforming the clergy and the people. He even had all the males in his kingdom make an oath of loyalty to him. That's how far he was wanting to go. Now, that oath of loyalty sounds pretty familiar to a certain regime in Europe in the 1940s, doesn't it? Charlemagne attracts the best scholars from places as far as England. It really is a rebirth of European civilization after the fall of the Roman Empire. And it all sounds so great until you remember that he was willing to kill to make it happen. He was essentially trying to do what Hitler tried to do, but in medieval times, a time when the Catholic Church was powerful and prestigious, and he's working with the church. So you have this secular and religious framework combining to form one framework in his realm. And like I said, it looks great, but you have to dig into the history. Now, the last thing I want to cover about Charlemagne in this whole series is how he was crowned emperor. Pope Adrian dies in 795. Einhard says Charlemagne weeps over his death. It's as if he lost a brother or a son. That's how close Charlemagne was with this pope. The next pope is Leo III, and he's unpopular in Rome. He wasn't from an aristocratic family, so he didn't have the support of the powerful nobles of Rome. And he was accused of embezzlement and immoral behavior, and his unpopularity got so bad in 799 that Leo, when he was in a typical fancy papal parade to his mass, was attacked by a mob in daylight and in public. This was the pope getting attacked by people, and it was instigated by the Roman nobility that hated him. He was thrown down to the ground and almost mutilated, but he manages to escape before they cut off his tongue and blind him like they wanted to. With no other way to stay both alive and a pope, he goes to the only place he can for help, Charlemagne. Leo crosses the Alps to meet Charlemagne, who's of course at this time busy campaigning in Saxony. So the pope travels all the way to the northern edge of Charlemagne's kingdom. And as he's traveling, rumors of what happened to the Pope is preceding him, and they're telling Charlemagne that he was blinded and his tongue was cut off. When the Pope arrives to Charlemagne, his court is disappointed to see that. In fact, the Pope's eyes were still in the sockets and his tongue intact. But Leo claims they were healed by St. Peter, so that's, uh, that's how it goes for the time. <laughs> now, Leo appeals to Charlemagne, calling him the king, the father of European asks him to come down and resolve the matter, protect him, protect his honor and essentially make good on the pact that the Frankish Kings have had with the popes. But it does get worse for Leo. Just a few days after Leo gets there, the Pope's enemies arrive telling Charlemagne all about his bad deeds. Now Charlemagne decides to wait it out. He sends some envoys to escort the Pope back to Rome to find out what's going on. Now, When that report gets back to Charlemagne, it gets so bad. It's such a terrible report about the Pope's conduct that Charlemagne's head educator and clergyman, an English man named Alcuin, actually says he prefers to burn the report than keep it. It's that bad. So all this is very humiliating to Leo, obviously, the fact that this report gets out, the fact that Charlemagne didn't immediately come down to bail him out, but it's the Pope And at this time, who can sit in judgment of the Pope? Charlemagne doesn't actually want to. That would do a lot to undermine the framework he's building. So he comes up with a plan. He's going to come down to Rome, and he's going to essentially acquit Leo of everything and reinstate him. So Charlemagne, father of Europe, protector of the Roman church, goes down in the following year and reaches Rome in November 800. Notker has a nice way of putting it. He says that the head of the world came to the city that had once been the head of the world. The Pope comes out to meet him. Twelve miles from Rome, in fact, which is a very humble show of the Pope. You see, the Roman emperors only required their servants to come out six miles. And Adrian never came out to meet Charlemagne. He made Charlemagne come to him. So you see the weak situation Leo is in by coming out to meet Charlemagne. Now, Charlemagne calls the council the powers that be in Rome, and in front of the whole assembly, it's confirmed. Yes, the pope can't be judged by anyone. So Charlemagne allows Leo to prove his innocence with a solemn oath, and that's it. Of course, Leo does that. So Leo triumphs over his enemies in Rome. Two days later, Leo is going to reverse the humiliation and the lessening of the papal office in relationship to the king, and he's going to mastermind a dramatic theatrical victory. A victory so powerful, it influences how we see the Catholic Church this day. It's Christmas now, and Charlemagne is going to have mass with the Pope. The Pope, knowing this, comes up with this plan that Charlemagne apparently is unaware of. Here's how Tom Holland describes what Leo did. Quote, Two days after the Pope's acquittal, Charlemagne attended Christmas Mass in the shrine in St. Peter in the Vatican. He did so humbly, without any insignia of royalty, praying on his knees. As he rose, however, Leo stepped forward into the golden light cast by the altar candles and placed a crown on his bare head. Simultaneously, the whole cathedral echoed to the ecstatic cries of the congregation, who held the Frankish king as Augustus, the honorific of the ancient Caesars. Leo, never knowingly less than dramatic, then prostrated himself before Charlemagne's feet, head down, arms outstretched. By venerable tradition, such obeisance had properly been performed only for one man, the emperor in Constantinople. End quote. I actually like Will Durant's description as well because he adds in what that proclamation was. Three times after the pope crowned Charlemagne, the congregation and choir they erupt with cries of hail to Charles the Augustus crowned by God, the great and peace-bringing emperor of the Romans. So the Pope crowns Charlemagne emperor. And even though the Pope is prostrating himself, symbolically, he's actually put his office on top of Charlemagne. The Popes had been kingmakers. We saw this in previous episodes, but now the Pope was an emperor maker. No emperor could be one without the pope's confirmation. The emperor had to be in good standing with the Catholic Church, and this is the ultimate triumph for the Catholic Church. Years later, you had popes go to war with emperors they didn't like, and it was only possible because of this idea that the pope made or broke emperors. This was all because of what Leo did here. Leo, perhaps one of the weakest popes, in, in ways is a fighter and he turns this whole debacle this whole humiliation into a victory for him and future popes that's powerful the whole thing was staged choirs don't make proclamations without knowing what they're going to say after all and it's clear that leo knew he was going to crown charlemagne as emperor and some think that decision was made while he was up in Francia, but we don't know when But we do know that events lined up perfectly for this to happen. There was a vacancy on the throne in the east. The Byzantine emperor had been a boy. His mom, Empress Irene, had reigned as regent. And when the boy reached the age to rule on his own in 797, Empress Irene gouges out his eyes and hurts him so badly he dies. So the Pope saw an opportunity here. There was a vacancy. A lot of things went Charlemagne's way for him to become emperor with the least amount of resistance. Now here's the thing, Charlemagne also knew it was coming, but he didn't know exactly how it would happen. Einhard, remember the historian who was part of Charlemagne's court toward the end of his reign, writes about Charlemagne's reaction to the ceremony Christmas Day 800. He writes, quote, At first he disliked this so much that he said that he would not have entered the church that day, even though it was a great feast day, if he had known in advance of the Pope's plan, end quote. So Einhard is showing it as humility, but most historians, they say Charlemagne knew about this at a time that he was going to be crowned, but what he regretted was the way that Leo did it, by putting his papal office over the office of emperor. To use biblical terminology, the woman was riding the beast. And you wouldn't understand that unless you listen to the first episode, by the way. So the church-state relationship was a difficult relationship for any pope or emperor to navigate. Without an army, the pope had to walk a lot more carefully. Charlemagne at this time had nearly complete control of the bishops in Francia, but symbolically, Leo puts the papacy firmly on top. It was a relationship that probably worked better under Charlemagne than any other future emperor. Here's how Will Durant puts it. Quote, out of this intimate cooperation of church and state came one of the most brilliant ideas in the history of statesmanship, the transformation of Charlemagne's realm into a holy Roman Empire that should have behind it all the prestige, sanctity, and stability of both Imperial and Papal Rome. End quote. This looks so brilliant to Durant, and yet it's not. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Charlemagne's reign, this coronation, this Holy Roman Empire. It reminds me of what Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians. It all looks so good. Here's a guy who brings civilization to Europe and Renaissance, better learning, better government, unity, peace in his realm. And when you dig down, you see what kind of guy Leo is, who does the crowning and the thousands Charlemagne murdered to get there. Paul writes about the early start of the Catholic Church this week. quote, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. End quote. It's such a perfect description. Charlemagne looks like a minister of righteousness, a bringer of light, and yet he brought the worst kind of darkness. You know, we used to call this time period of the 800s and the 700s as the Dark Ages. And now I know it's not popular right now to still call it that way, but I think the older historians had it right. The cooperation of church and state may have not caused the Dark Ages, but it certainly kept Europe in the Dark Ages for a lot longer. And if you have a problem with the term Dark Ages for this time period, here's how the Bible describes this system of cooperation. It's in a prophetic vision given to the Apostle John that he records in the book of Revelation. Here's what he sees. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. End quote. This system is a beast ridden by a woman, which symbolizes a church, drunk on blood. Now, this is focused on what the beast does to God's church, but if you were a Saxon or an Avar, you would have a lot to relate to in this description. Charlemagne was the second of the seven heads John refers to. Dark age seems like a rather generous label when you compare it to what the Bible describes it as. So this is where we wrap up the series on Charlemagne. Five long episodes, but all of it necessary to get the full description of Charlemagne and what he did. What stood out most to me in this history of Charlemagne was Notker's description of the noble and Lombard king waiting for him to arrive in Pavia. Remember all that iron? One translation of Notker wrote, The noble telling deciduous, quote, when you see a crop of iron shoot up in the fields and black rivers of iron come flooding around the city walls like the surging waves of the ocean, then perhaps you can say that Charlemagne is arriving, end quote. Pretty dramatic, and it reminds me of a famous speech Otto von Bismarck gave in the 1860s. He is a German minister there. He was the one responsible for creating Germany. But in the 1860s, Germany was not yet a state, and he was explaining how he was going to unify them all. And he said it wasn't going to be decided by speeches, but by war. Here's, here's what he told the Germans, quote, Not through speeches and majority decisions will great questions of the day be decided. That was the great mistake of 1848 and 1849, but by iron and blood, End quote. They call Bismarck the iron chancellor. And his speech, which was called the Iron and Blood speech for that statement, was referring to a poem written in the Napoleonic War's time period. It's the same method, the same result. Otto von Bismarck unites Germany in 1871, and in 40 years, World War I breaks out, provoked by the same Germans eager for more power. And that resulted in 15 to 20 million people dying. How's that for iron and blood? And this is nothing new. It's as old as history. Going back in time from Hitler to Napoleon to Otto to Charlemagne down to the 20 years of devastating war in Italy waged by Justinian, it's all the same in the end. Iron and blood. Even on the smaller scale with the Frankish King Clovis, who we covered in a previous episode, one of the things that was interesting about Gregory of Tours in his history on Clovis is that he could see all the carnage Clovis caused, but he still wanted that kind of devastation for the sake of unity. It's mind-boggling. Here's what Gregory writes in his history. Quote, I am weary of relating the details of the civil wars that mightily plagued the nation and kingdom of the Franks. And the worst of it is that we see in them the beginning of that time of woe. Which the Lord foretold, father shall rise against son, son against father, brother against brother, kinsman against kinsman. They should have been deterred by the examples of former kings who slain by their enemies as soon as they were divided. How often has the very city of cities, the great capital of the whole earth, been laid low by civil war, and again, when it ceased, has risen as if from the ground? Would you too, O kings, were engaged in battles like those in which your father struggled, and the heathen terrified by your union might be crushed by your strength? Remember how Clovis won your great victories, how he slew opposing kings, crushed wicked peoples, and subdued their lands, and left to you complete and unchallenged dominion over them, End quote. That's amazing. Clovis, remember, is the guy who murdered all his relatives that could claim to be a king. And Gregory is calling for Clovis' descendants to act like him. Wage these wars to unify the kingdom. How could anyone call for the end of civil war and unity by pointing to Clovis as a role model? He achieved that unity by killing anyone who stood in his way. And Charlemagne did too, beheading 4,500 people in one day. Iron and blood. And except for Hitler, these kinds of war leaders get the tag Great added to their name. Remember our question, how many years in the future before some people might try to add Great to Hitler's name? Hitler the Great. It's despicable to imagine, I know. And yet that's what happened to all these other tyrants. Now, I named those tyrants for a reason, Napoleon and Otto and Charlemagne and Justinian, because they're all part of the Holy Roman Empire system, a system prophesied in your Bible in that book of Revelation. It's a system that's all about bringing unity through iron and blood. Here's how Gerald Flurry puts it in his book, The True History, The True Church of God. Quote, there has never been a system like it among these other world-ruling empires. One big reason it is so different from the Seven Heads is that it is guided by a false church that had more people killed than any other church ever on earth, and the worst is yet to come, end quote. So you see, the Roman Empire was bad, and those were the heads that he's referring to in this section. But the Holy Roman Empire was a different system, and it was worse. Gerald Fleury writes in another part of the book, quote, For centuries and throughout the Dark Ages, wherever the Holy Roman Empire had great control, it killed God's people. We have to recognize the full impact of the Holy Roman Empire. Many historians have tried to estimate the number of people killed by Roman Catholics over the centuries. Conservative calculations put the figure at 50 million. End quote. 50 million! 50 million people dead. That's close to the casualties of World War II. And that estimate by the way, only went up to the Reformation era, so it doesn't include the later versions or resurrections of the Holy Roman Empire. What Will Durant calls a brilliant framework killed 50 million plus. That's not brilliant. This is the history the schools don't teach you. And the prophecies given to John show it's going to happen one more time. And if you don't remember this history it's going to catch you off guard. What we are, where we're going, all of that comes from the idea of who we were. So when you hear European leaders calling for a Charlemagne, remember the history of Charles. Charles who waded through rivers of iron and blood to forge Europe. Rivers of iron and blood are coming again. A new Charles is about to arrive. And even if you don't believe in these prophecies, just look at the history. And with the kind of iron militaries use today, when iron is mixed with uranium to form nuclear weapons, you have to wonder, this next time around, who will be around to call the next Charles Great. Rewind Repeat, a history podcast, airs on kpcg.fm 101.3 as part of the Trumpet Radio. You can find this show and all the other shows on the Trumpet Radio on the trumpet.com or on kpcg.fm.